It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what will we be doing when we get to heaven? Part 2, coming up in this episode. Based on our last episode, we discovered that going to heaven is way beyond harps, clouds, and vacation time. God wants the faithful in heaven so he can put them to work. That's right, work. Obviously, heavenly work can't be bad, but do we know anything about what will be expected? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Uh, Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Going to heaven is a really big deal. Last week was part one of our three-part series on what heaven-bound Christians will be doing when they get there. In it, we uncovered the mechanics of why only chosen ones are privileged to go to heaven. We began to scratch the surface regarding what these disciples of Jesus will be doing. Turns out the job descriptions we focused on were nothing like what most people envision as heavenly life. In today's episode, we're going to dig deeply into what the responsibilities of those heaven-bound will be. More than that, we will attempt to understand the why of it all by connecting several prophecies and scriptures. Our discoveries will reveal absolutely inspiring details and descriptions of how God's plan is destined to work. We encourage you to listen to all three parts in this series in order to get the comprehensive answer to this important question. Using our companion CQ Rewind show notes found at ChristianQuestions.com and on our Christian Questions app for each episode is a great resource for your personal study. We only began to answer this question in part one, so let's do a quick recap of the basic points we covered to bring us up to speed. We looked at this topic through the lens of four aspects of the Christian's heavenly reward. Lens one, heavenly groundwork. What God's plan dictates must be done as a foundation for heaven. Lens two was heavenly privilege, some of the unmerited privileges faithful Christians will be given. Lens three, heavenly inheritance, some of the amazing aspects of heavenly life the faithful will own. And finally, we looked at lens four, heavenly responsibilities, some of the requirements that a faithful Christian life will lead to. We left off with a reading of verse three of Isaiah 61, which is obviously symbolic. Let's reread that. So they will be called oaks or trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. As we move on to the next verses, the work that these trees are called upon to do will unfold. Isaiah 61, 4 and 5. Then they will rebuild the ruin, ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be farmers and your vine dressers. These trees seem really active. They rebuild, they raise up, they repair. They're doing a lot of work here. 
And, you know, it's interesting because you look at trees of righteousness and you have that feel for something that just stands there. Well, what it means is it's something that's just very stable. And that's the aspect that we really want to cover here. So remember, the fourth lens that we've been using is heavenly responsibilities. Some of the requirements of a faithful Christian life will lead to. So, Rick, when we look through that lens, what do we initially see? All right, we're looking at these trees of righteousness, and of course they are representative of the faithful disciples of Jesus. So these faithful disciples of Jesus will be tasked with the responsibility of overseeing and rebuilding of the world after the time of trouble has ended. So we've got that as a basis that we're beginning with. All of the work here that we're going to be unfolding in this Isaiah scripture, uh, of this, this work of rebuilding, of bringing order and value back to where all was lost, it all begins with the nation of Israel, and we'll get into that a little bit later. As we discuss these next few verses of Isaiah, let's review a New Testament scripture that we touched on in our last episode, 1 Peter 2.9, that will help us label the heavenly responsibilities required. In part one, we talked about what groundwork the footstep followers of Jesus need to accomplish in order to be prepared for heaven. One of these was to accept the responsibilities and changes that come with discipleship. And Jonathan, you said footstep followers of Jesus. We've been describing this class of people with interchangeable terms like those footstep followers, faithful followers, the true church, the church class, the church of Christ. The Bible uses terms like overcomers, the bride of Christ. These all describe the same small number of faithful ones who will be in heaven. And incidentally, the goal of all of us here at Christian Questions is to be a part of this special group. And as if there's, I'm not enough titles, let's read the descriptive verse. Rick, you said 1 Peter 2.9. We're going to keep going back to this. 1 Peter 2.9 describes the group in this way. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And these verses open major understanding into what heaven will look like. They list several privileges and responsibilities that are not only given now, but will be inherited later as well. So we've got the Isaiah 61 scriptures that we're working with that's going to give us a lot of work to do, and the 1 Peter 2.9 scriptures that gives us descriptions and see how these two things work together. So while the elements of 1 Peter scripture are drawn from several Old Testament sources, and again, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, we see them all fitting in very, very closely with the Isaiah 61 descriptions of what these faithful disciples of Jesus will be tasked with once they're given heavenly glory. Isaiah 61 verses 3 and 4 show us these trees of righteousness are a specially chosen group. Let's start by focusing on the element of a chosen race. Now the King James Version says a chosen generation, but put in modern terms this phrase chosen race triggers thoughts of racism. Why is that not the case here? Okay, 
<laughs> the a chosen race. It sounds racist. I get it. I get it. In the 21st century, I get it. But folks, let's understand we're talking about God's representation. This, quote, chosen race is, is, is a, a group of people chosen from all nations and all races and all generations after Jesus. So there is no racism. It's a chosen group. Let's not put 21st century labels on ancient sacred scriptures. Let's take them for what they actually mean. So let, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen, which means select and faithful. And it's interesting, this word for chosen in Revelation 17, 14 is the only is only used in the New Testament to describe either Jesus or his true disciples, nothing else. When I hear the phrase chosen people, I think historically of the nation of Israel because of Deuteronomy 7, 6, that says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And you're right, Israel had always been God's chosen, unquestionably so. While Israel ultimately does retain favor with God, the true disciples of Jesus, made up from all nations, as we described earlier, uh, including Israel, are the chosen race here described. So 1 Peter 2.9 calls these special ones this chosen race, but chosen for what? And that's our core question. What will these chosen ones be doing in heaven? And in part, it looks like they're going to be rebuilding the broken earth and blessing resurrected humanity. And remember the promise given to Abraham, Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Indeed, I, God, will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you, Abraham, have obeyed my voice. So you have this incredible blessing, and we have talked about this promise on Christian Questions, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And every time I read it, I'm impressed by it, because it helps us to understand the breadth of God's plan. Your seed will be as the stars of heaven. Doesn't that sound like something spiritual? And as the sands of the seashore, doesn't that sound like something earthly? And in your seed, both of these things, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham was obedient. So what we've got is a promise for this, these trees of righteousness, this chosen race to play a very specific, important role as this spiritual seed. So Jonathan, let's go on to, let, let, let's look at that, its fulfillment in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And now let's read Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That promise is to bless all families of the earth. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, is what it said. Here Galatians says those who belong to Christ, the chosen race, are part of that seed of blessing. What a privilege. But Rick and Julie, the inheritance the faithful ones are given is a huge mess. <laughs> Taking Adam's sinful race of, I don't know, uh, billions and billions, and then transforming them into God's kingdom of righteousness on earth, 
is a tall task. In a sense, it's like the devastating pathway of the hurricane we just experienced full of pain and heartache. On September 28, 2022, Hurricane Ian slammed into the west coast of Florida and then other states, causing death and billions of dollars of destruction. More than two million people lost power and some also lost water, my wife and I included. We have a boil water mandate since the storm up until today. Now, repairing all that damage will take years, if not decades. The mental health and stress of the people directly affected might never be repaired in this lifetime. But in the kingdom of on earth, the faithful ones are given the privilege of helping to rebuild. What a merciful plan of salvation our Heavenly Father had in place right from the start. The work that has to be done to reconstruct people's lives from a hurricane is a great microcosm example of what's going to need to be done in the kingdom. The Bible assures us that the majority of the billions of people who ever lived will be resurrected on earth. Think of the joy of children who died coming back to their parents, families finding each other, seeing their loved ones again. There's logistics involved on how and when and where everyone will be raised and housed and fed and educated on what's happened and what their future looks like. There's a lot of work. And the Bible doesn't give the details of how this will work. But we know that to make the blessings of all the families of the earth prophecy come true, it'll take a lot of work. It'll be amazing, miracles by the minute. And, you know, we, we look at all of that and say, well, how is it going to work? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. That's really what we're looking at here. And these trees of righteousness are behind all of this according to this prophecy. So let's go back and, and, and review that, that fourth lens, looking through that lens of heavenly responsibilities. One more time on these specific verses in Isaiah. This chosen race, the faithful disciples of Jesus, will be tasked with the responsibility of overseeing the rebuilding of the world after the time of trouble has ended. And Jonathan, like you said, it is a major task, a major mess, and it requires God's power through Jesus, through these chosen ones, to get it to all work correctly. We can look at Acts 3, 20 to 21 to get some scriptural clarity on the restitution work to come. And let's read this from the King James Version. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Times of restitution, restoration, rebuilding, restoring, putting things back to where they belong. That's what this time is about. And when we look at this Isaiah prophecy and these trees of righteousness, and we start to think about this chosen race, chosen to rebuild and to bless, we can see that there's a lot of sense in putting them in a position of primary responsibility under Christ to get all of this work done. So we've got the Acts chapter 3 prophecy of the times of restitution. Let's go to another prophecy. In this next prophecy, God says he's going to cause things to happen. And we can now see that Jesus and his true disciples will make these things happen. And this is an equation that we're going to come back to later on. God causes, and then he has others that gets the job done. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Ezekiel 36, verses 33 to 36. Real quick, before we read this, I kind of peeked ahead. 
you know, some people, we're going to read this prophecy, they feel that the literal fulfillment of it already happened when Israel became a nation in 1948. So after Jonathan reads this, I just want to know how we know it has a secondary fulfillment in the future kingdom. Okay, well, first of all, I think it's the primary fulfillment is in the future kingdom. And the reason that we look at it that way is the context. Jonathan, it's my favorite word. It is, it is. (laughs) The context tells us. When Jonathan begins reading, at the very beginning, listen to what he says about God's uh, approach, and then at the end, when he gets to verse 36, listen to what he says about the nations around Israel. So Jonathan, let's go with the, uh, Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about, you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. What a picture of what's to come. First, God will forgive iniquities of the people. Second, the land will be cleaned up and then cultivated. Third, cities will be rebuilt. When the Garden of Eden is mentioned, it doesn't mean we'll be sitting in our own perfect gardens. It's a picture of perfection. And work will be done to bring it to that point. Things will be brought up to the highest earthly level possible. So when you say Garden of Eden, it doesn't mean Garden of Eden like no technology and everybody gets to name a lion. <laughs> right. That's very... Although I do want to name a lion. You do want to name a lion. Well, we'll see what we can do about that, Julie. But but, <laughs> but the other thing is, you know, with the, with the context of this prophecy, it says, on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. That shows that it is a future work that Israel, the nation, physical nation will be cleansed. And then it says the nations around you will know that I, God, have done this. We haven't seen that yet, and that's why we look at this very much in a future sense. So it's important to realize that these prophecies, they all work together, and it funnels down to these trees of righteousness being the representatives, the heavenly representatives, driving all of this work. Jonathan, so from heavenly groundwork to heavenly beings, what do we have so far? Jesus' true disciples are chosen for a reason. They will be an integral part of the massive restoration work that planet Earth and its people will need. They will represent and accomplish the works and plan of God as strong and immovable symbols of righteousness. No wonder the groundwork they needed to accomplish in this life was so demanding. So two quick points to sum up where we are so far. First, we've been systematically going through the prophecy in Isaiah 61. Now we're overlaying the 1 Peter 2.9 descriptive elements that describe the true church. Second, there's a massive restoration work to be done, unequaled at any time in history. These trees or oaks of righteousness are leading that restoration work with Christ. So they're not real trees in the ground. They are strong symbols of God's righteousness and his presence with the world. So understanding and appreciating the symbolism of biblical prophecy really expands our comprehension of God's amazing plan. Jesus' disciples are a chosen race that will deliver restitution. What other heavenly responsibilities will they have? As we will see the heavenly responsibilities pile up, we will also notice that these responsibilities will be primarily focused on 
earthly restoration. Now this might sound odd. They go to heaven so they can do all this work on earth? Why? They go to heaven to be given the power and the authority to accomplish the greatest restoration work in the history of earth. So you have to be given that sense, that power, and God releases them to do his bidding. Let's continue with Isaiah 61, 6. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. So we've got two things here, the priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. And these two designations need to be individually understood. So we're going to take them one at a time. First, we're going to focus on priests of the Lord. And, and just before we start this aspect of things, we want to make sure it's understood. We're not talking about priests in the sense of Christian priests in certain denominations today. Not at all. We're looking at the priesthood of Israel and the way it worked, and we're going to expand that even further according to Scripture. So it's built on Israel's definition of what a priesthood was, not Christianity's definition. We've been looking at lens four of heavenly responsibilities, which were some of the requirements that a faithful Christian life will lead to. When we look through that lens, what do we see regarding priests and ministers? Okay, the body of Christ is tasked with the heavy responsibilities of executing godly rulership over the world as priestly representatives of God through Jesus. They accomplish this by following the leadings of Jesus. And I mentioned something in this, in this, these heavenly responsibilities. We talked about godly rulership. Hang on to that thought, because that's going to become very important in a moment. So again, these trees of righteousness, they are Jesus' faithful disciples and are called priests of the Lord. So Isaiah 61, 6, we have priests, we have ministers. Let's overlay 1 Peter 2, 9 onto that. And it's curious how Peter adds another dimension to this role of priesthood. Remember, he called it a royal priesthood. So how is it that according to Peter, this priesthood is royal? Israel's priesthood was never that way. So you've got this, this seeming contradiction. First, let, let's understand, because it's actually scriptural. First of all, Jesus is the head of this royal priesthood. Let's go to another prophecy, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, pointing to Jesus, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord of our righteousness. So you see this powerful prophecy in Jeremiah. You think, well, that's a different prophecy. It's not connected. Well, listen, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness. He will be called the Lord our righteousness. We've got tremendous connections here as we build an understanding of these trees of righteousness being called priests of the Lord. So now let's touch on the royalty, because it talked about Jesus reigning. This royalty also appears and is expanded in the book of Revelation. And it's expanded in Revelation chapter 5, uh, verse 5, in the context of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And remember in our last episode, we talked about Jesus as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God. He, his work on earth was for, as a lamb, 
his work later as a, as a lion, still having done the work of the Lamb. So let's go to Revelation 5, 9 through 10, with the Lion of the tribe of Judah in our minds from verse 5 previously. And this is from the King James Version. And they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We see then that this royal priesthood, as Peter labeled it, is corroborated by these other scriptures with the description of kings and priests. And that's a simple thing. And when you put it together, you see why the apostle Peter put it in place. And when we realize you have this royal priesthood, it's a very special, very powerful, very responsible priesthood that we're talking about. How, do, how does this all come to be? It was the overcoming of the Lamb of God. It was all because of Jesus that opened the door for the Lion of Judah to reign, and therefore for the true church, for his followers to reign with him, as Revelation just said, because they are his body. And we know that from Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Let's back up to lens three, our heavenly inheritance, some of the amazing aspects of heavenly life that the faithful will own. Looking through that lens, Rick, what do we see? Okay, this is the lens of a heavenly inheritance. Royalty is inherited. The body of Christ is part of the kingly inheritance of the line of the tribe of Judah by virtue of being faithful one by one, being faithful to Jesus and his world-changing sacrifice as the Lamb of God. Once raised as spirit beings, the body of Christ is born into kingship. It's a, an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance. And I got to tell you, at this point, Jonathan and Julie and anyone else who's striving to be faithful, we don't deserve that. That's beyond us. It's too big for us. And yet, God's grace says, this is what I want for you and from you because, because I have work to do with you. So we've got this royalty part that is very well established scripturally. So now let's focus on the priesthood part because there's more to it than, than you might think. The priesthood aspect of the body of Christ also has deeper meaning and responsibility than previously thought by many of us. Remember, the priesthood in Israel came through the tribe of Levi. Jesus was born to the tribe of Judah, uh-oh, contradiction alert, and his priesthood therefore has a completely different origin. How is that possible? How is it he comes from a different tribe if we're building the picture of the priesthood after Israel's priesthood? Well, there happens to be scriptures that explain this to us. Jonathan, let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11, 14, and 17. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe, with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is interesting. He's only mentioned in three places in the Bible, including here in Hebrews. 
Historically in Genesis, he was the king of Jerusalem and called, quote, a priest of the most high God, end quote. And the third mention of him is in Psalm 110.4. But here in Hebrews, Melchizedek is used as a title or a designation of honor to be filled by a worthy candidate. It's a transliteration of two Hebrew words that literally mean king of righteousness. And God used Melchizedek who was both a priest and a king, as a picture of Christ and his triumphant church, who will act as priests and kings in the future kingdom on earth. It's a great analogy. So you said king of righteousness is the literal translation, right? That's right, in Hebrew. So think about that. What are those trees? They're trees of righteousness. They're solid foundations of righteousness under the head of the king of righteousness. Folks, you see how all this just fits together so beautifully, so perfectly, so scripturally, as we understand what this royal priesthood is. As with the Old Testament priesthood, this royal priesthood that we're talking about will accept the offerings of the people that they bring, that those people bring before God. They will teach the people. They will intercede for the people. They will uh, bring, uh, the, the, the blessings that the people bring will go through this priesthood, and they will bless the people as a result of all of that. So their work is very much like the priesthood of the Old Testament, and it is a go-between, between the people and God. Rick and Julie, practically speaking, after the devastation and then the rebuilding of this world, I can picture the teaching process something like this. First, love is taught. Why? Jesus loved them first. They were given this free gift of life. Next, joy, because their loved ones are returned to them. Can you imagine the reunions? Peace, there's no more war or Satan's influence. Patience, learning how to forgive and be forgiven. Kindness and goodness, because everyone has been given both teaching faithfulness, which secures everlasting life, gentleness, because this is the peaceable kingdom, and lastly, self-control, because all of their righteous needs are met. Why would these qualities be taught? Because Jesus embodies them all. And you know, Jonathan, you just listed a whole litany of change and challenge for the people of the world, and that's why you have this royal priesthood, and there's a lot of ministering, which we're going to get into in the next segment, that comes with helping people get there, because that's what this is all about. This is all about helping people get there. This priesthood, which we're privileged to have in the beginning stages here and now in our lives, is for the purpose, it's for the primary purpose of blessing the world later. We know that from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed." Now, Jonathan, the verses you just read are worthy of an entire podcast all by themselves. But the bottom line that we want to draw from these verses is you also, the Apostle Peter says, are living stones built into some, a spiritual house. Yet another picture 
of us working with Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone after which that house is fashioned. So you see, it all comes back to Jesus, but he brings his followers with him so that they can work the works of God through Christ, through these trees of righteousness, this royal priesthood, to help the people of the earth step up to godliness. So let's go back and repeat that the heavenly responsibilities that this royal priesthood has. The body of Christ is tasked with the heavy responsibilities of executing godly rulership. Remember now we, we talked about the, 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 the reigning, and we saw that in Scripture. Godly rulership over the world as priestly representatives of God through Jesus. They accomplish this, like you said, Jonathan, by following the lead of Jesus. That's where all of this comes to fruition. So wrapping this piece up from heavenly groundwork to heavenly beings. To become a royal priesthood that directly represents God and his plan is no small thing. It requires sanctified faithfulness to sacrifice in this life and being born into a spiritual inheritance in the next. The responsibilities of this inheritance will include priestly service to the redeemed and resurrected race of humanity. It's a very, very significant picture that we are uncovering and learning, and hopefully we're appreciating with great awe. The responsibilities of kingly rule and a priestly role can just be plain daunting. No wonder the heavenly call is not for everyone. The Isaiah prophecy revealed becoming both priests and ministers. Aren't these the same thing? That's a good question. While being a priest and a minister is absolutely all about the same end result, there are important distinctions between the two responsibilities. So as we move forward and define the differences, we will be again reminded as to how specific and dynamic the future responsibilities of Jesus' true disciples are. Think about it. God had this planned long, long ago. And in that plan, all of these details, he saw the details. He saw the necessity, and he worked them into this plan. And then those who are faithful to Jesus become parts of that. Let's continue with the prophecy in Isaiah 61, 6. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. Well, priest means literally one officiating. Minister means to attend as a menial or worshiper, figuratively to contribute to. Menial means a domestic servant or one of a humble rank. We are to be a priest and minister? Yes. Yeah, and see, there's, there's a, a tremendous difference in the definition of those two things, but they work absolutely hand-in-hand, hand, as we will see and unfold by further study and understanding the responsibilities of those who are faithful to Jesus once they go to heaven. Remember in part one when James and John asked Jesus to be seated as, at his right and left hands? Here is the rest of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. So now, as you read this, Jonathan, the words for minister and ministered correlate definition-wise to the word minister in Isaiah 61.6. So in other words, the Hebrew word for ministers 
correlates, has the same definition as the Greek words for ministered and minister in this next scripture. So we're talking about the same kind of activity. And this, this really opens it up. So go ahead with uh, Matthew 20. And this is from the King James Version. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, Jonathan, when you said the definition means as a menial, you know, just an average worshiper or worker, Jesus himself said he came to minister. He came to be a part of people's lives. So let's understand priest and minister. To be a priest of the Lord is to hold an office of spiritual responsibility for the people. To be a minister of God is to, at the instruction of the mighty God, directly serve and help among the people. So being a minister is the get-your-hands-dirty part of the priesthood, of that of that position. So it's not just holding some lofty position, and incidentally, that's kind of what the Pharisees tried to do. They tried to hold a f- position above the people. Jesus showed us that you can have that spiritual authority and get your hands dirty. He's the model of priest and minister. Looking through our lens four of heavenly responsibility, how are the faithful priestly ministers of God from heaven? Okay, priestly ministers. The responsibility of being both priests of the Lord and ministers of God describe a far-reaching task. As a priest, the true church will represent the will and the way of the Lord. They will, through the high priest Jesus, be the pathway to God for the resurrected world. Alongside of this power and privilege, they will carry out God's bidding by serving and guiding people's to lives of godly righteousness. They're going to get their hands dirty right along with the people as they guide them. So the true church will, at the command of God through Jesus, have a sacred responsibility to reconcile. And it's sacred because God the Father has instructed them to implement this reconciliation. Let's talk again about the practicality of reconciliation. Think again about all these people being resurrected. We believe it's going to be in their same mental state of sin as they were in when they went into the sleep of death. And part of the rebuilding of the world would have to include, I think, counseling and education. Think of the trauma that's happened throughout history. There's going to be murderers coming face to face with their victims. All the horrible things people have done to each other will be made known. Everyone is going to have to give an account. They're going to have to make amends. They're going to have to set things right in order to progress in God's righteous kingdom. Christ and his church will be overseers in making this massive humanity-wide rehabilitation project come alive. It's a colossal undertaking in order to put people on the right path. So true, Julie. And, And my hope and prayer is that I can be faithful and be a part of that reconciliation process. I think about how wonderful it will be to help rehabilitate my sister who was killed in a tragic car accident at age 34. She was agnostic, and I would love to be able to teach her about the Lord. 
you know, Jonathan, I remember that. I remember that because at that time, you and I lived in the same town. We worked at the same cabinet shop. That's and, right. And I was the, the general manager of the shop, and you gave me a call early, early in the morning and said, by the way, I'm not going to be able to come in. Here's where I'm going. And it was like a shock to me. And, and I remember this vividly because, first of all, of the tragedy. She's only 34, and you're younger. And I remember you going there and describing how your family was just in shock, and you had that deer-in-the-headlights feeling. But I also remember, after it was all over, how your dad said to you, Jonathan, you really took charge of this thing. And I think it was by God's grace that you were able to minister to them, even at that point, through the depth of tragedy, of a sudden loss like that. It really was very, very dramatic. And also, remember in the last segment, I mentioned Satan's influence wouldn't be there. Revelation 20, verse 2 describes Satan being bound during this time of rehabilitation and unable to interfere in the recovery efforts. Let's take a look at this now. Let's put this in perspective from scriptural uh, scriptural aspect here, and 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 look at reconciliation, the sacred responsibility to reconcile. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses eighteen to twenty-one. And this is from the Weymouth translation. And all this is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and has appointed us to serve in the ministry of reconciliation. We are to tell how God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself not charging man's transgressions to their account, and that he has entrusted to us the message of this reconciliation. On Christ's behalf, therefore, we come as ambassadors, God, as it were, making entreaty through our lips. We, on Christ's behalf, beseech men to be reconciled to God. And this is about what we're doing here and now. Now remember, the big picture is what happens later once the church has the glory of their heavenly resurrection and they come back of these trees of righteousness. But this is giving us a sense of, here's where it starts, right here and right now. Let's go to verse 21. He has made him who knew nothing of sin to be sin for us, in order that in him we may become the righteousness of God. That phrase, that in him we may become the righteousness of God, well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Isaiah 61.3 described the destiny of the faithful ones to be those trees of righteousness that glorify God. And again, you have this theme coming out again and again, righteousness of God, glorifying God in righteousness. This is why God calls those individuals to follow Jesus. It's because of the future work, the future of humanity's reconciliation will be driven by these ministers doing the hard work of representing, of exampling, and implementing the righteousness of God. I see it as three parts of reconciliation. First, we need to be reconciled, be made right with God through Christ here and now. Second, we then teach others to be reconciled now and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Third, we bring reconciliation to the whole world of mankind during the kingdom work in the future. So with the power of the righteousness of God, and there, there's that theme, the theme of godly righteousness, we, though, though, those who are faithful, will have another task as well. The true church will, after glorification and all of this and, and, and the reconciliation process, at the command of God through Jesus, they will have a sacred responsibility to judge this is just as important as that sacred responsibility to reconcile. And the Apostle Paul gives us a, a, a flash of what that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. 
from the New Living Translation. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. So what these verses are telling us is this is our dress rehearsal for the future work. We have all heard the expression, practice makes perfect, but it's really more accurate to say perfect practice makes perfect. And later in the kingdom work, we, if faithful, will teach others how to do perfect practice. Think about it. The training of this present life is for the purpose of preparing the faithful for the hard to fathom future responsibility of not only being judges for humanity, but judges of angels as well. Priests, ministers, judges, there's so many job descriptions here for this church. Perfect and unerring judgment comes through being a priest and a minister, being endowed with the authority and direction of God. And that's why the scripture is so plain and straightforward. It tells you both why you need both to be sanctioned by God with the authority and then the power to actually go get the work done. And looking back through that lens, number four of heavenly responsibilities, what do we see? What we see is judgment and reconciliation show us the magnitude of the trust that God has for the glorified true church and the power they are given as a result of that trust. To be in possession of such responsibility and power gives these glorified beings great ability to be living examples of praise and honor to God. You learn best by seeing a tremendous example. Back to Isaiah 61, 6 and 7. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. In your riches you will boast. What does that mean? Well, this prophecy is describing the world and the kingdom as being reconciled. Look at how the world is growing and what is being accomplished, especially with natural Israel. That's worth drawing attention to and being excited about. It's like a parent looking at their children and saying, you are doing such a good job. Keep it up. Blessings will flow. It is. It's that, that excitement, that, that, that excitement of the growth in others. The idea of partaking of the wealth of the nations of all people shows these priests and ministers have, in fact, inherited the earth. And we discussed that in, in part one of this series. With this inheritance, there will be a turning of the tide for all. First, let's take a look at the turning of the tide for the faithful, because in this life, the life of faithfulness is hard. Is hard. And the scripture says, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And let's use 1 Peter 1, 6-7 to give an example for that. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the difference from the shame and the difficulty now to the glory later. Praise and glory and honor 
to God. That's what it's all about. As far as the world is concerned, in the Isaiah scriptures, the humiliation of this world and the sin and the death and the mistakes and the problems turn into a double portion and everlasting joy. And we see that through another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. I love these scriptures. Here we have implements of war turned into tools of cultivation. Just think about how many families have been devastated by wars throughout history. Here we have life in the kingdom in a righteous environment instead of the broken environment that we live in now. And look who's working at making it work. It is those trees of righteousness as priests and ministers. Jonathan, from heavenly groundwork to heavenly beings, what do we have? To become a minister of God is to do the work of His will. This work is a work of service, building, reconciliation, judgment, and guidance, and can only truly be accomplished with the priestly authority that have been endowed with. And not only have they endowed endowed with the authority, they have been given the ability to go out there and get it done among the people. It's very inspiring. So, To be a minister of God never looked so amazing. Now this ministry in this age touches a few. Later, this ministry will feed and build billions. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, and ministers of God. How much more responsibility could there possibly be? (laughs) Glad you asked. With all that we've covered, we've only looked at, at the work of bringing the world back to God as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. While this is a massive and defining work, the same responsibilities are also focused in on God's other chosen people, the physical nation of Israel. All that will happen with them is foundational for all that we have seen with the rest of the world. So we need to understand that the Israel part of this thing is one of the linchpins for making everything move forward. The focus now shifts as we go back to Isaiah. The previous verses focused on the glorified disciples of Christ and the entire redeemed world. These next verses now focus on Israel as the lead nation among all the peoples of the world. Let's continue reading the Isaiah 61 prophecy, verses 8 and 9, and it's interesting how verse 9 proves verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offerings, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. So all of the positioning and responsibilities that the glorified body of Christ have fulfilled with the world that we've talked about in the previous verses of Isaiah chapter 61, they will also fulfill with Israel. It will be God's holy nation serving God's chosen nation. Mm -hmm. All those Old Testament prophecies that describe the physical nation of Israel receiving special blessings are still in play 
and are happening at this future point in time. Remember, the Jewish people were God's original chosen and still have promises coming to them. So let's go back to the four descriptions in 1 Peter 2.9. Remember, the true church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. As a holy nation, this elite group of faithful people are the example of what it means to be in full compliance with God. They were, we'll we'll look back and see that they were human beings living in the same world of temptations and trials as everyone else, but they were in compliance with God's will to the best of their ability. And that's what we're all striving for. Resurrected humanity will look up to them throughout the ages to come as examples of righteousness, the embodiment that what compliance with God's ways is not only possible, but that it's the best way. Now, this holy nation has yet another description in Daniel 7.27. There they're called the holy people of the Most High. And this is from the New Living Translation. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. You know, Rick and Julie, God is a master delegator. He has chosen spiritual, special ones to fulfill all aspects of his plan. And, you know, one of the amazing things to me is as we go through these responsibilities of the true church, uh, once they are glorified in heaven, all these scriptures tie together. They all interweave and tell us an amazing, amazing story. As we've seen, the spiritual seed of Abraham will be the ministers of God. They will carry out his will. When we see God making a covenant with them, in the following prophecy, talking about making a covenant with Israel, we understand that to mean that the covenant will be made with Israel through the mediation of God's holy nation. It's like that Ezekiel scripture we read earlier. When God says he's going to do something, he works through those he's put in place to get it done. So Jonathan, let's go to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So you have this 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 comparison that God puts in place, and it says, I'm going to make a new covenant with this house of Israel, not like the one that they broke way back then, which incidentally worked through Moses, who was a picture of Jesus. It, it helped to understand that God is comparing that old covenant, saying, I did make a, a promise to them, and they broke it. But now there's something different. Let's pick up with verses 33 and 34. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So you see that this covenant goes far beyond what that old covenant, the law covenant, actually could do. As Moses mediated the first covenant, so God's holy nation, through Jesus, through Jesus, it's all about Jesus, and being part of the body of Christ, this holy nation will mediate that second covenant. And to brush up on how covenants work, we would recommend listening to episode 874 called God's Three Great Promises. Which one is for you? 
So God made these promises or covenants to certain groups of people at various times. We've all heard of the Rainbow Covenant, where he promised not to flood the earth. And we've been talking about the Abrahamic Covenant with that promise that in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the, of the earth be blessed. That Law Covenant, Ricky, you were talking about, that God made with Israel, that's the one that includes the Ten Commandments. It was interesting because it required a mediator a translator, someone who intervenes between two sides at odds to bring them together. And Moses was that mediator, as you said. God dealt with Moses. Moses brought the message to the people. This prophecy in Jeremiah here is referring to the new covenant for which Christ is the mediator, the go-between, the two sides of God and mankind. And remember, we learned that where Christ goes, there goes his church. So the church as you said, will be part of the remediation work to reconcile mankind back to God. Now we focus on verse 9, Isaiah 61, 9. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. So you see this powerful picture focusing in on Israel. And what it's saying here, contrary to the earlier verses when it was talking about all nations, it's talking about this one people and being recognized as the offspring whom the Lord is blessed. They're different because they have the heritage of God's hand in their lives throughout all of their history. So Israel will be plainly seen as blessed of God, as God's own people, just as Jesus' faithful disciples will be seen as God's own faithful sons. With natural Israel, after the law is written upon their hearts, they take what they've learned and support the heavenly work to spread God's kingdom. As an illustration, take a cloth and dip the corner of it in oil. Let's picture the church as the initial oil at the tip of the cloth. What happens is the oil gets absorbed through that dry cloth, and then it goes to Israel, which is saturated with oil. Next, it goes to the whole world until all is saturated. So the church works through Israel to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The hierarchy is God works through Christ and his church, who works through Israel, so that the world can be in harmony. Righteousness spreads in an unstoppable way. And that, that's such an important point to make because what we see, folks, is when we look at these oaks of righteousness that we've been talking about and all these responsibilities, God's plan is for it to not just be them, but it's for them to start that process so that the rest of the world through Israel and so forth gets it and grows into it. And the last description in 1 Peter 2.9 that we haven't talked about yet, a people for God's own possession, like Jesus— they are chosen to be sons of God, and they have God's plans work through them. Titus 2.14 uses this same expression, a people for his own possession. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You know, it's confusing to me how the majority of Christianity teaches that if you just believe in Jesus, you are saved and go to heaven. But that's not what the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He struggled to live that high standard of sacrifice it takes to be worthy of the calling to follow Jesus. He said he still had a lot of work to do. Now, if the Apostle Paul struggled, uh, are we worthy to be a people for God's own possession? Would God give someone immortality, uh, deathlessness, if he couldn't trust them? 
no way, very few will achieve this position. And, and you know, when, when you think about this and the power of this, and that's why this Titus scripture is so important, because it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us so that, and to be purify us so that we could become this people for his own possession. So it's not about how great we are. It's about how great the sacrifice of Jesus is and how great the grace of God and his spirit is working in our feeble little lives. That's what it comes down to. And let's look at that lens for our heavenly responsibilities one last time. What do we see when we look through that lens? Well, we've got titles here now, the titles of a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. What do they do? They clearly reveal the inherent status, power, and authority that Jesus' faith will be given once they're glorified. This comes after all of this present world. These qualities are their permanent inheritance and privilege. You know, when you inherit something, it's supposed to be, that's it. It's yours for the rest of your life. Well, if you have immortal life, that's a pretty long time. Permanent inheritance and privilege. As we begin to come to the end of this prophecy, let's touch on one detail of Isaiah 61.10. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The picture of Jesus as the bridegroom and his true disciples as the bride is well understood in Scripture. There are also other wedding scenarios that show this connection. But in some of these scenarios, it seems as though there's another group who are less than those most faithful. Who are they, and are they in heaven too? All right, so you open up a can of worms right at the end. That's why we have part three, <laughs> because, because in Scripture, you do have something else going on. We've been talking for the last two podcasts about this, this specific group and their specific responsibilities, but there's more. There are others. Let's just take one small scriptural glimpse at this other group, this other uh, assembly of individuals. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 5. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. So we're just scratching the surface. And no, Julie, we're not going to answer any questions on this right now. So <laughs> because we're, we, we're running out of time and we need part three to develop this. Here's the thing. And Jonathan, in, in the parable you just read, one group of virgins are entirely faithful and the other have faith, but they fall short. This principle of having faith but falling short is important and it needs to be clearly understood in the context of heaven's responsibilities for true disciples. So this is one of the things we're going to look into next week. Who are these? How are they described? Where are they? And how does it work? We're also going to look at the bride of Christ. We haven't hardly touched on that in our last two podcasts and what it means to be part of the body of Christ. So while we've gone through this Isaiah uh, set of scriptures and unfolded all of these pieces, there is yet more to come. Jonathan, finally, from heavenly groundwork to heavenly beings, let's wrap this up. The future work of Jesus's faithful disciples would be daunting were it not for the gifts that God will give them to be raised to heavenly glory and become known as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
ministers of God, a holy nation, and people for God's own possession is a level of privilege and existence that is impossible to be worthy of. Thank God for his plan. Thank Jesus for his sacrifice and his faithfulness. And when we look at that and we look at the privilege that we have to be called according to his purpose, to be called to a life of sacrifice, we realize that there is so much more to it than this life. And it makes the trials and the difficulties of this life somehow a whole lot more easy to to understand and to accept because you realize that God is saying to you, if you are called and if you have been given God's spirit, he's saying to you, you, I'm going to test severely because I need to be sure that you can handle all of these things that are coming later. That's why you are called. So folks, as we wrap this up, let's understand the depth of privilege, the depth of responsibility, and the overwhelming sense of awe we need to have when we look at God our Father and Jesus our Lord and the call of the true church. There's so much good to be had from this. Let's work at being faithful. Think about it. Folks, listen, we do love from hearing, uh, hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. And yes, you already know, coming up in our next episode, what we'll be doing when we get to heaven, part three. Talk to you about that next week. <laughs>